Welcome to Political as Heck, a podcast where we discuss Utah politics and policy. I'm Corey Assel, joined by Utah State Senator Todd Weiler. What is up, Todd? Hey, Corey. Not too much. Hey, great. So, once again, we have a great guest, Representative Anthony Lube. Welcome, Anthony. Thank you, Corey. So, Anthony's a Representative Lube, I should say. He's a great legislator and a great guy, and uh, certainly a friend of the show. And we're super excited to have him on. So you you know how we, what, how we roll here. First thing we want you to do is tell us a little bit about yourself. What uh, district do you represent? And how'd you get your first start in politics? Yeah, uh, so I represent the west side of Salt Lake County. So that's Magna, the west side of West Valley City, west side of Kearns, west side of West Jordan, and Copperton. Um, and I, I used to be uh, a deputy Utah County attorney in their civil division. And so I used to work with the different elected officials there. Um, and that's kind of like was my first time getting into politics was working firsthand as staff um, and advising the county commissioners. Um, and I started noticing that as I was working with the county commissioners and we were working on getting funding for projects in the different areas in Utah County and for Utah Lake and working with the federal government, uh, I'd come back to my area and realize like a lot of those things were not being addressed in my area. And so I started wondering, well, what's my representatives doing? Why aren't they trying to advocate and get these funding and move these projects up the list and all that sort of stuff? So that's when I started taking an interest in my own area and trying to figure out how I could best serve them. Um, and that led me to, to run the, for my first time back in like 2020. Um, and then, yeah, so I, I barely lost that one. And then I ran again in 2022 and I won that, barely won that one. So <laughs> here I am. And Anthony, with uh, redistricting, how, how does your race look for this year? Uh, it'll still be a, a fight. Um, my area is very purple. It's like if rounding wise, there's like 6,500 Republicans, 6,500 unaffiliated and 2,500 Democrats. Um, so it's very mixed. Um, and so, uh, it, it's hard to predict. I know if I work hard, um, I should be able to hold the seat. Um, but it's something I can't just like, and so, you know, some of our colleagues, I mean, once they have their nomination, they can just sit on their laurels and not have to really do anything anymore. And they're already going to be the, the official. Um, I have to make sure I work pretty hard for that general election. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't know if you get this, um, Anthony, but when I was brand new, some legislators, especially from Utah County, they'd be like, well, why aren't you voting more conservative? And I'm like, well, because I'm trying to represent my district and my district's not as conservative as your district is. Have you had those conversations? Yeah. <clears throat> uh, yes. Yes. In fact, some of the bills that I had, we had, I had to vote no on because of my district. Yeah. Um, and whereas a lot of my colleagues voted for, so yeah. that does get fun. I think we're on the same boat there. So, <clears throat> yes. And I am happy that we have a, a party big enough to handle some votes that go a different way. And uh, obviously I live in Utah County where most people vote in the same direction and, and I'm happy about that. But you know what? Uh, you represent my my initial hood. So, you know, my parents are from Magna. I was born there and uh, still have a lot of family in Magna and grew up in West Valley city. So you, you represent a lot of my hood. So that's why I cheer you on even more. 
<laughs> I appreciate it. It's a good area. All right. So we want to give you the chance to share with folks what you're working on and some of the cool stuff that you're doing up there. Uh, sure. I'll, I'll go over a couple of my bills. Um, so one that I actually just presented on Thursday and Friday in uh, Senator Weiler's uh, committee, Senate Judiciary, um, was about the uh, clergy exception for child abuse or neglect. So um, currently under the law, if a confessor goes to a member of clergy and confesses that they're abusing or neglecting children, um, there's no uh, legal obligation for the member of clergy to be able to report. Now, there's no prohibition that nothing says they can't report. And so because of that, there are some people that are not certain whether or not they could report. Um, but what is clear is that if they learn about child abuse or neglect from any other source, they become a mandated reporter and have to report. Um, and so uh, what my bill does is it changes it just, just a little bit. And it says that a member of clergy may report child abuse or neglect if they have reason to believe that uh, it's currently ongoing. And then uh, even if the person confessed to them. And the reason for this uh, is a couple different reasons. One is that it does create incentive that if uh, somebody wants liability protections, civil and criminal liability protections, um, they can report and get those. Um, it also provides protections that they wouldn't have gone before. So mandated reporters get criminal civil liability protections. If somebody did report, because it's not mandated from them, they don't get those same protections. Um, so this does provide like a reward for those that do. Um, but it also it is permissive. So that way, if you have somebody who, a member of clergy, maybe a faith, um, Catholic church, for example, um, the confessional is like very sacred and confidential, and that's part of it. And uh, a priest, if they reported, it, they would they would be excommunicated. Um, this bill will allow them to continue that practice and not have to feel like they have to report. Um, but for other faiths, that that's not something that would go against their doctrine. They can have policies in place that would protect these children. And it's focused narrowly on like the ongoing, because if something is an exigency, we want to make sure law enforcement gets involved. Um, it's able to help these children. And if it's ongoing, it's a lot easier for law enforcement to get the evidence, you know, talking to schools, neighbors, families, kids, because um, everything is uh, happening at the moment. And so they can build their case independent of that report from that member of the clergy. Um, and so, it, which is different if, if somebody had reported that they had committed child abuse or neglect like 20 years ago. Well, it's going to be really hard for law enforcement to do anything about that. And under the Utah rule of evidence and other evidentiary rules, like in other states or federal, generally the there's a privilege to somebody who confesses to member of clergy that that member of clergy cannot be used as a witness against them unless that confessant consents to it. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, that, that's also reaffirmed in my bill to make it clear that that doesn't get waived just because somebody does report. Um, so uh, we were in those, we started working on it prior to, I started working on it prior to the start of the session. Um, and uh, I had communications with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the Catholic Diocese to kind of 
let them know what was coming down the pike, see if they had any concerns, see if there's ways that I could uh, address any of those concerns and get them to a point where they wouldn't oppose the bill. Um, and we were finally able to get to that point, like by the start of the session. So that was pretty exciting. Good stuff. And where, where is it at in the process now? Uh, now it's on the Senate or going to the Senate floor. So Yeah. And you're going to have to prioritize that because we won't do house bills again. until till Wednesday, unless it has a fiscal note, then maybe. Oh, yeah. So Corey, I mean, people might be surprised that uh, we get lobbied by the Catholic church. We get lobbied by, I get lobbied by priests with their white collars. They'll come up and talk to me about bills um, the church that Anthony mentioned has a government relations arm that quite frankly has a really soft touch up there on the legislature. I, I only see them, you know, maybe once or every other session or so on maybe one bill. Um, and you know, th there's about 500 lobbyists for every 100 legislators up there. And, um, I'll tell you who lobbies probably more than any of the churches and that's equality Utah on the LGBT issues. <laughs> so it's, it's good for us to get, you know, different voices and different, you know, um, concerns from different groups. I think that helps us shape the best policy. That's it. That's great. That's good insight. So what else you got? Uh, another bill that I started working on uh, deals with interracial marriage. Um, mm -hmm. This one came uh, when, when Dobbs was, came out and overturned Roe v. Wade. So in Justice Clarence Thomas's concurrence, uh, he lied several other Supreme Court cases that were based off of substantive process. Uh, and but that when he used language, he would take it and cite it from the Loving case. And so, even though he didn't call out specifically Loving, that was a case that the media kind of jumped on and brought up the fact that he's in an interracial marriage. And it's funny that he hasn't brought it. And, and so, members of my community have a very diverse community, and they were concerned about, well, what happens to our marriage or our relationship that's interracial? Um, and, and, you know, hypothetically, if loving was overturned, well, then it would go back to whatever our state law says. And what usually happens is when the federal government comes out and the decision is handled, sometimes states don't go back to change the law. So it just kind of is frozen in time. Um, and so our law effectively said, because we actually had have an interracial marriage section in our in our code. And it says, like, if you were married prior to July 1st, 1965, and an interracial marriage, uh, we'll recognize it. And then it cites other sections of code that are no longer in our code. And it doesn't say anything about what happens after that date. Mm. So it's a code that doesn't bring a lot of comfort to people <laughs> if the, the loving case was overturned. So uh, I looked into uh, revising that so that it was clear that um, people could get married and they wouldn't be discriminated based off of their race, ethnicity, or national origin. Um, and in this process, in doing it, I was able to work with uh, uh, a college professor that she's worked on um, various religious type uh, bills, both here in Utah and other states and federally. Um, I know, I think Representative Weiler has worked with her as well. Um, and so she was very helpful in helping craft the language to make sure that um, we were respecting our current code and uh, and uh, keeping everything consistent. So there's that, Bill. Good. Well, I'm glad you did that. And it seems like a good thing. 
But let's also be clear to people that the chances of the loving decision being overturned is like none at all. Zero. <laughs> Zip, zilch, nada. Not a chance. Yeah. Not going to happen. It's not even a threat <laughs> in any way. But I'm glad you're doing that. <laughs> <laughs> it just gives people peace of mind. Yeah, I think we we we, we discussed this at the time that uh, that so, some of the other uh, justices were taking it in that direction. And I mean, the conservative justices were just like, no, nah, that's not where we're going. So anyway, but I'm glad you're doing it because, yeah. you know, give people peace of mind and, and that sort of thing. All right. So I, I got uh, another question for you. Are you French? Should people know that you're French, Anthony, with a name like Lube? Uh, uh, there is French, although it is very small by now. Um, my dad's actually Mexican, so I'm probably one of the whitest half Mexicans you'll find. Um, <laughs> but yes, my dad's from Mazatlan, Mexico, and generations back, uh, a French engineer came to Mazatlan, uh, was working on, like, he was an engineer helping develop the steel, and he married a Filipino. And then they had a son that married a Mexican that had a son that married a Mexican. And so uh, I'm like a Heinz 57 sauce. I'm a little bit of everything. <laughs> so I, the reason I ask you that is, uh, you know, you and I have gotten together before and I've asked you that. And I, I think that story is interesting. And anyway, thanks a bunch. Is there any uh, any final notes for us? Uh, no, I, I have other bills that I, I'm doing. They're just uh, improving the process. So things that are updating like uh, certification language, procurement code, stuff like that. So just things that are trying to make things better, more efficient. All right. So then the final question is for those, for those folks who want to help out, how can they, uh, how can they help out we know you're going to have a really tough race? How can they, uh, how can they help you out? Where, where should they go? Uh, they can go to my website at Anthony Lube. So A-N-T-H-O-N-Y-L-O-U-B as in boy, um, And then there's a spot where you can, uh, submit and show that you want to help out and you can donate money or well not right now but <laughs> after session in a week uh, in a week <laughs> but you can also indicate if you want to volunteer signs stuff like that door knock excellent all right thanks so much thanks Uh, we've got Representative Ryan Wilcox joining us, and in, addu in addition to a uh, monumental school safety bill, Ryan is also running the um, the MLB baseball uh, bill that, um, that that is, you know, some people love it and some people don't. So welcome to uh, Political as Heck, Ryan. <laughs> thanks. Good to be here. Hey, thanks for taking some time out and joining us. What can you tell us about... Uh, about the baseball stadium financing. Yeah, I think there's uh, <laughs> thanks for giving us a chance to talk about it. I, most of what we've been uh, fighting off in this one have been more rumor than reality. So appreciate the chance to, to talk about that. Um, what this is, it's called the Fair Park Investment and Restoration uh, or Fair Park Area Investment and Restoration District. And the reason why is because we've incorporated a lot of what we have in the Fair Park area right now in that surrounding community. Um, there's obviously we have, you know, I think when I served with you, Todd, uh, 10, 15 years ago, we've had, you know, a lot of discussions about what to do with that Fair Park, uh, meaning we were losing money every year, tens of millions of dollars. It's a 
aging asset. We frankly didn't know what to do with those buildings and how to keep that going. And that's in addition to the crime uh, that had been ramping up and has been ramping up there uh, in the surrounding community for a long time. Um, across the street, we had some aging industrial infrastructure that requires some pretty significant environmental cleanup and all of that uh, next to the Jordan River, uh, which has seen far better days and has never really been taken advantage of there. And so we were considering what to do with that property, um, how to protect that. We made some changes last year. If folks have been paying attention to that, that have helped to turn around the financial situation. Um, for the first time, it's not losing money, which is great. Um, but what this does is it gives us a mechanism whereby we can uh, protect that asset and help it to be profitable into the future uh, so that it's not a drain on the state, but it's also a continued asset. So what, what that means for now is that we would create uh, this district uh, combined of both the property that we have, that we have several parcels of state property there um, in addition to the fair park and the property on the other side that is currently owned by Rocky Mountain Power that has been acquired by the Miller Company. Um, that property is the one that needs a lot of remediation needs a lot of help um, in order to um, take its place there between uh, airport and Salt Lake City. And frankly, is the is a challenge that the Millers have taken on in order to help uh, transition that from a uh, blighted area to one that is uh, profitable, and is a beautiful asset for the state. What that means for us right now is just the creation of that authority uh, to be able to start that work and to begin uh, the advancement of our master plan at the Fair Park. Um, what it hopefully means into the future as part of that is an opportunity for us to uh, not just to invest in the Fair Park as we have it, but to build an asset that would be able to uh, host a Major League Baseball team. That's a unique opportunity that we have right now. Um, it's uh, not a guarantee by any means, and it's important that folks understand that nothing that we're talking about as far as the stadium uh, itself or the funding mechanism for it triggers unless that franchise agreement is signed. If that is, in fact, signed, then we would have an opportunity to fund the stadium through a 1.5%, so a dollar, dollar and a half on a $100 hotel room um, or 75 cents on your average, 67 cents on your average uh, rental car uh, rental in Utah, by the way, 90% of which comes out of the Salt Lake Airport. Uh, so it's, it's stuff that's primarily paid by folks from out of state, but that is directly related to tourism, which of course, a stadium project, Major League Baseball team would help to fuel. So there's that's the, the basic part of the funding. Um, that revenue stream would then take care of the state's portion, which would be just under half of what would be required to build the stadium at that site. Any overruns would be responsible responsibility of the franchise. Um, but the probably the least understood part is that we're not just we're not giving any money to the millers. That's just not a thing. What is happening? is we are paying for half of the construction, up to half of the construction of a stadium 
And the other part would be really responsible, the franchise, whatever that was. And then we would own the asset, meaning up to 900 million could be spent there. Whatever they spent after that um, would essentially be equity donated to the state of Utah as the land and the asset itself, the stadium would be under state ownership. And of course, then available for the Olympics, for all sorts of events that we haven't had access to in the past, any of those kinds of things. So we're, we're actually really excited about that. It also facilitates the, uh, not just the rehabilitation of the fair park, but uh, building uh, amenities there that we haven't had in the past either, but the cleanup um, of the river and some really cool opportunities there for that community in the west side that frankly they're they're pretty excited about too that as they felt like they've been neglected for a long time so we have an existing state asset that otherwise we'd be required to pay for in the fair park either through direct appropriation or through some kind of a mechanism like this and uh, this gives us an opportunity to not just take care of those issues in the long term and make sure that they're uh, preserved and, and available for Utahns into the future, but also we have a once-in-a-generation opportunity. Uh, Major League Baseball is going to go to uh, expand by two teams, and right now we're in the driver's seat. So we give them the chance to show that we can handle that here, and uh, we will have an opportunity here shortly to demonstrate that. So hopefully yeah. that answers most of the stuff out of the gate, but I'm happy to answer any questions. Well, you know, I, I was listening to Greg Hughes talk on another podcast, and he said, well, gee, I'm a little disappointed with my Republican colleagues. This doesn't sound very conservative. Um, I yeah. mean, you just described as we could get a $2 billion asset for less than half off. Um, how right. would you respond to that criticism? Uh, yeah, I'd say it's sort of the opposite of that. Um, not only is it a smart investment from that standpoint, We've eliminated uh, the risk involved for the taxpayer or really any of our visitors. If we don't get the asset, it doesn't happen. Meaning if we don't get the franchise, there's no uh, construction and that doesn't kick in. Um, and if, and they have till 2032, by the way, to complete that agreement. Um, if for any reason they leave that site, not just the state or, or anything else, but if the franchise were to be acquired, and we built the stadium, um, they left the site, then they have to pay back everything they did and we retain the asset, right? We did anything that uh, it was received from that tax. Um, we're working on all sorts of details, um, but again, um, estimates on the Fair Park have been, for what we want to do there in the master plan, are upwards of $500 million. And with this mechanism, um, we aren't gonna be responsible for that anymore. We've created a mechanism whereby that happens. The Fair Park Board has worked with um, the Miller Company to show them what they want to do, and yet we retain all of the profits there for anything that is sold or, or generated at the Fair Park that allows us to preserve it in the long term, let alone the environmental remediation that we would also potentially be responsible for. So, yeah, I don't see that as super left-wing at all. All right. What about the criticism that we're hearing a lot of that why should hotels in Moab and St. George have to basically fit the bill for a stadium that's in Salt Lake? Yeah, 
Yeah, and I could probably give the same answer. We invest in tourism infrastructure all across the state. Um, we've done a ton with the Mighty Five, which frankly, in some cases, we've sort of maybe overdone, to be honest with you. We've, we've uh, had more problems with loving those communities to death uh, <laughs> and those lands, I suppose, by inviting folks out there. We don't regret that necessarily, but it has been a struggle. We've gone to lottery systems in some of our parks that you're probably familiar with um, because we've had too many visitors and uh, that's been difficult to fund. I think it's important to recognize that we have different assets in different areas of the state and we do that all the time. So we fund water projects, we fund um, tourism uh, activities. The legislature um, this year has funded a number of things that are targeted to Southern Utah, but that also brings me to one particular issue related to the growth of tourism in our rural communities that's been a significant problem. And that is search and rescue and EMS services for those visitors. And some of our uh, communities, some of our counties down south, in particular, you're talking eight out of 10 of those calls that are for tourists. And we haven't had a mechanism whereby we could do that. Representative Snyder, Representative Albrecht, myself, Senator Owens, we've been looking for a solution to that for years, where we've been trying to figure out a, a way that we could get a piece of that tourism dollar to actually cover the cost of hosting the tourists. Um, most of those search and rescue teams are volunteer, meaning we're really just talking about the hard costs of rescuing folks who find themselves lost along the way or get themselves into trouble. And we still haven't been able to do that. It's been a massive burden on our rural counties. And so as we've had those conversations, if you watched the hearing the other day, you saw that several of those rural counties showed up and testified in favor of the bill, because as part of this, we've been able to add a 0.10%, so it'd be a 1.6 total package, but that 0.10 would be added immediately and uh, would immediately provide relief for our rural counties directly associated with tourism. Uh, because it's the same section of the code, same section of the tax code, uh, that allows us to to be able to solve that problem with it, with the political will that exists in northern Utah to help uh, address the related problem in southern Utah. And so I guess what, the other part I'd say to that is the state fair park is all of ours. We could have moved it out to somewhere else, but we made a conscious decision with the Farm Bureau, with the rural communities and in the rest of Utah that we wanted to keep that here. We wanted to keep that in the capital city as an education piece, as it, as it speaks to our heritage. That's where we host Days of 47 and remind as some of our friends who might not otherwise ever see a rodeo or a cow or any of those things where their food comes from. And so preserving that asset, like I said, is a direct state interest and responsibility that we share no matter what county we happen to be from. Obviously, I'm not from Salt Lake, but I see the value in that. And uh, I appreciate the uh, opportunity that that provides to help solve both of those uh, twin problems. You know, so Corey, there is a lot of nexus there. Th this is anecdotal, but uh, several years ago, I was at a conference and I befriended uh, Representative Houchin from the I Indiana Senate. She is now uh, a congresswoman from Indiana, but Alec had a convention here in the summer of 2021, and she flew out with her husband for the first time to Salt Lake. And do you know what they did? They came out for the Alec conference, but they touched down in Salt Lake. They rented a car and they immediately drove to Moab for three days. Yes. Back for the Alec conference. <laughs> if someone doesn't believe that Moab and Zions 
is not going to benefit from people coming in for Major League Baseball, then they're not thinking straight. And I know that's anecdotal, but that's going to happen. No, it's, it's not just anecdotal. Yeah. It's not just anecdotal. In fact, we've done the research. We've done the studies to look at this stuff. And baseball fans are a little bit different. I'm, I'm one of those. And so when they told me this, it resonated with me. When I travel with my family to see, I'm a Mets fan, okay? And it's tragic since I had the 80s, I know. But when I travel with my family to see the Mets, we go for three or four days to that city. In fact, my kids, when they turn 13, they get to choose a major league city. The only rule is it's got to be somewhere the Mets are playing. And they get to pick a city one of the other kids hasn't already picked. So it's just our city for them. But we go for three or four days because we go for a series. And then we go to all the other stuff in that city or that state. So in Philadelphia, my, one of my daughters picked, we went to Gettysburg and we went to Harrisburg and we did all this Civil War stuff. And we went all the way around the state. And of course, in between, we did baseball and Independence Hall and everything else right there in Philadelphia. Right. So it's it is different. There are people that are going to come in. But when they come in for baseball, they spend time. Yeah. They tend to do those kinds of things. Yeah. I have visited and I, I, I'm mostly a college football sports fan. But I have personally visited, I think, two dozen uh, Major League Baseball stadiums. It's kind of, and, and I'll continue to visit them. My my goal is to visit all of them. Um, so yeah, I, I do think this this is going to have a statewide effect. Um, in, in any event, um, and Ryan, can you just give us, uh, five, you know, just a very short? How is this proposal different than the hockey proposal? Well, I haven't uh, studied the hockey proposal. My understanding is that they're authorizing them to raise a sales tax in the project area. For so just Salt Lake City, I think. Yeah. In Salt Lake City itself. Yes. Yeah. And that's, you know, there have been some that wanted me to mirror that or to include that into uh, what we were doing. And I, I, frankly, it doesn't work. And it mostly doesn't work because ours is site dependent because of the fair park, because of the stress area around it. And because of its location between the airport and downtown, um, there's, you know, we have a, a unique opportunity there, but it, it really isn't connected to the other project in, in any way. You know, I have never visited a major league ballpark without seeing 25 to 30 uh, restaurants and pubs right within walking distance. You know, I think yeah. this happens, that whole North Temple will be a completely different experience in five or 10 years. I'm, I'm really kind of excited about it. Hey, real quick. Yeah, me too. About out of time. Just real briefly, what can you tell us about your school safety bill? Yeah, the school security bill. I mean, honestly, this one's the, the fun one is the baseball one, but the most important one is easily the most school security package. Um, it's the result of, of really almost two years of work after the Rob Elementary disaster in studying and understanding why these things have happened, mostly, frankly, by visiting the places where it went wrong and understanding what they could have done, what they wish they'd have done. This last week, I got to introduce a couple of the parents I've been working with from the Parkland disaster and some of the things that, that they uh, had to share with us. And one of the things I that you know stuck out to me in the conversation in the Senate, we were talking to several of the senators, including Senator Weiler here, um, was when Max uh, Schachter turned to them and said, don't make the mistake that we did. Learn these lessons from us now. And that's been really what this has been about. We're trying to do our best to, uh, to, to learn those lessons now, to get ahead of it, both from design, from training standpoints for the adults. That's really the, probably the most important part. But then also uh, the one that gets the most attention is the uh, armed security aspect. 
And I, and there's, there are some folks that are uncomfortable with firearms and they don't, you know, I hear they don't want to add more firearms to schools. And I totally hear that. And the hard fact is they are already there. One of our high schools we're pulling two guns a week out of right now. We've had 60 lockdowns for major threats to schools so far this year and three, which have been active plant attacks that we intervened in. Oh, we lost Corey. <laughs> um, that's probably, I'm wondering if his phone ran out of battery because I know uh, I caught him uh, in a, uh, away from his home, but um, well, Corey, um, I know, uh, so, so part of his plan is we would compensate a, a teacher or someone already working in the school. We'd give them four hours of training for, you know, what to do if an active shooter entered the school and they'd get a little extra money on top of their teacher salary for being the designated uh, mm -hmm. person school. And the biggest part of this bill, as I see it, is any school shooter, any potential school shooter is going to know there's someone in every school that's been trained to shoot back. And we're hoping that that'll deter, you know, some of those potential attacks. Yeah, yeah. Good stuff. All right, we covered a lot today, Todd. Yeah, we did. <laughs> we'll see you next week. See you next week. Thanks All right, everyone. take care, Corey. Bye-bye.